Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch, a host with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We appreciate you listening in. In this podcast, we dive deep into biblical studies and into theology, and sometimes we bring those two together. In this episode, we're going to have Tom McCall talking about analytic Christology. And our hope is that even people who are more on the biblical studies side of things uh, listen in on these theological conversations because the two fields can really illuminate one another, and we hope that that happens in this episode and throughout our episodes. Also, uh, thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show, for all the work that you put in there. Ed, we, we so appreciate you. And um, thanks for sharing the word about the podcast, too, Give, um, giving us ratings on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you haven't done that yet, please do. If you're not really into that kind of thing, there are other options, ways to disseminate the word about what we're doing. Include like you might host a car wash at your local church, and and as people come in and they pay, let's say they they pay um, twenty dollars. As you know, once they've paid, tell them, oh, we're out of soap, um, but we're on script. And so you know that that play on words, I think, will catch people catch people's attention. Um, and then you could. You can donate the money that you receive to uh, OnScript. You can do that onscript.study forward slash donate. And, and then you could give them a card with our website address and maybe have it even blaring on loudspeakers and things like that. So, so there are lots of ways you can participate that go beyond just giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a bit boring. You know, I mean, uh, let's be honest. Uh, but, but we do appreciate the people that, that do that. Uh, so think about you know creative and inventive ways you can spread the word, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to On Script, where it is our pleasure to sit awkwardly on the fence. We straddle scripture and theology. We also sit between the academy and the church. And despite the tension between these competing concerns, we like to reside in that awkward middle ground. I'm Matthew Bates, your host for this episode. I've got Tom McCall with me to discuss his new book, Analytic Christology and the Theological Interpretation of the New Testament, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Tom, welcome to OnScript. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. It's I'm really gratified that you guys have any interest in this and, and honestly really honored to have this conversation. So thank you very much. Now, Tom, I was all prepared for a good conversation about Christology and the theological interpretation of the New Testament. The party was ready. Invitation sent. But there are certain people who just seem to have a nose for a good party. They hear about it, whether they're welcome or not. They just want to crash the, crash the gates. Come on in. Uh, people like Chris Tilling. Seriously, what kind of party could we have without Chris? What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Chris? Well, I'm gate crashing. I couldn't let you have this conversation alone. This is... This is my turf, man. I need I need to talk about these things. Yeah. Well, did you bring anything this time? Every time you come to a party, you just always come in. You don't bring anything. No, no beer. Uh, no, no hors d'oeuvres. Nothing. No wisdom. Nothing. I'm um, I'm just here to make some inappropriate jokes and hopefully catch him in the quick fire round. 
we're we're glad you're here uh, with us too, Chris. Um, and and thank you so much, Tom. So, Tom, we have a an opening question for you, and it's just a general sort of question. Um, and it, but it's helpful for to think about how you frame this uh, as these topics are big topics. Uh, what is analytic Christology then, and what is theological interpretation? So, thanks for yeah. Those are good questions since those are right out of the title of the book and. You can't always tell a book by its cover. In this case, I hope you can. Uh, those are the, you know, the, the things that we're doing here. So I, analytic theology is basically, I mean, the, the really short version, is it's just the theological enterprise that is committed to some of the characteristics, what I think of strengths, of the analytic philosophical tradition, namely clarative expression and rigor of argument. And of course, what counts as rigor we're going, is going to vary depending on what the topic is and who the audience is, fair enough. And even what counts as clear is going to vary somewhat. But that's the basic idea. Um, commitment to clarative expression, rigor of argument, and I will say the sort of intellectual um, accountability that comes with that. And it, it trust me, um, it, it, is, it, it, it can be very, very sobering to realize that it, you, one cannot just hide behind layers and layers of obfuscation and think that one sounds profound and it's going to work. In analytic theology circles, that gets exposed pretty quickly and sometimes kind of painfully, but often for the benefit of all involved in the, just the pursuit of truth. So that's what analytic theology, I mean, we could talk a lot more. There's a, there's a harder version of it um, that's a bit more precise that goes kind of like this. It's use, it's use of various tools um, either logical or metaphysics or epistemological or what, what have you. Um, it's the use of some particular um, philosophical set of commitments, tools, or proposals precisely for, um, for theological work. But more generally, it's just the commitment to clarity of expression and rigor of argument and the accountability that goes with that. By theological interpretation, I know lots of a lot of different people use the term and sometimes kind of loosely. What I mean basically is just interpreting Holy Scripture primarily to understand about what it says about God and about all other things in relation to God. In other words, the primary goal is not literary, you know, to, to make some statements about the literary apparatus or genre or the historical background behind it. Those things may be really important and may help us do theological interpretation. They may or may not. They can get in the way too. But they may they may be helpful, but that's not the main goal. The main goal is what does it say about God? Now, the way I want to do theological interpretation is probably too much. But what I want to do is benefit both from recent advances in biblical study, but also from the history of the church's interpretation of Scripture. So what some people mean by theological interpretation is basically anything – before say 1700 or whatever. And what other, um, I'm, I'm not limiting it that way. Although I do think there are a lot of strengths from the, from traditional biblical commentary uh, where I find a lot of, frankly, I find that sometimes really, really helpful and insightful, but I, I don't want to dismiss the massive gains that have been made in biblical studies in the last few decades. I mean, some of these are fantastic and so theologically fecund. I mean, just so, so rich. And so I'm kind of greedy. I want all of it. I, I've got to just throw in, I'm sure everybody knows about your invitation to 
Analytic Christian Theology, which I highly recommend. I thoroughly enjoyed reading that. And what, what particularly memorable, for me at least, is a definition of analytic theology that you gave, is it makes an argument easier to refute if it's in an analytic mode. And that has been so helpful uh, to me. Um, so even where there are arguments that I disagree with uh, in an author's work, if I know why I disagree with it, that's the author's for the author's praise. Um, so yeah, anyway, I was just going to throw that. Well, somehow I feel like I'm being shut up right now. So suddenly I feel like this is. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've got it. And this is why I don't agree with it. No. <laughs> well, I think um, I think Chris and I both are in firm agreement that you um, you do um, have a lot of um, different plates in the air in this book, but you you actually keep them spinning admirably well. Um, as you you certainly are doing work that draws on analytic philosophy, draws on um, you know kind of the, the best of our theological tradition in both a historic mode and a systematic mode, uh, but you're also paying attention to scriptural exegesis, and it's uh, not everyone who can even attempt to hoist those plates, Tom. Uh, so it's an impressive project. Let me um, introduce Tom a little more fully uh, to our audience. Um, Dr. Thomas McCall is the Timothy C. and Julie M. Tennant Chair of Theology at Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, he has a PhD from Calvin Theological Seminary, uh, and he served for 16 years as professor of biblical and systematic theology at TEDS, where he also directed the Carl F. Henry Center for Theological Understanding. Um, uh, he's uh, written a whole bunch of books, uh, just to highlight a few of them. Uh, more recently, After Arminius, A Historical Introduction to Arminian Theology with Keith D. Stanglin, uh, which was pub published by Oxford, Against God and Nature, The Doctrine of Sin, uh, published by Crossway, and An Invitation to Analytic Christ Christian Theology, the book that Chris just mentioned. Uh, one of my favorites uh, for, for Tom would be his Forsaken, The Trinity and the Cross and Why It Matters. Uh, and that just gives you a sampling uh, of some of uh, the various books um, that Tom has written. So tell us a little bit more about that, Tom, uh, about your life's journey as a scholar uh, and what, uh, what kind of brought you uh, to this place, what path led you to these specific interests? Oh, thanks, that's a good question. Um, the, the, so there's a little bit more I, I should probably say too. So before um, working in the Theological Academy, I served as a pastor for three years in South Central, uh, Southwestern Michigan and three years in South Central Alaska. And honestly, it's probably those experiences that make me want to keep reaching for the big picture and keep wanting to bring together these various um, these various elements of our of our theological disciplines, and it may sound odd because you know not a lot of people in in bi church Bible studies are reading analytic analytic theology, right? Um, but it it is the sort of they care they care about the issues that are being addressed there, and I found I have found that analytic theology is in some cases really actually helpful for proclamation and, and preaching, not in the sense that it shapes the way I preach at all or should directly, but it helps me avoid saying things that I probably shouldn't be saying and probably helps me focus on which sorts of affirmations should be made, even though, of course, you know, the, the genre is different. Um, so honestly, preaching and pastoral care have been part of this. And so the way I, I'm probably one of the last, um, hopefully not the last, but I'm still a generalist in, in theological studies. And so what I want is to 
be grounded in um, Holy Scripture. I, I take the Bible to be a confessional in that, so I take it to be Holy Scripture, and I want I want my theology to be grounded in it. And I think for the sake of the church, the church's theology should be as well. And that means I'm reliant upon, and I just have to rely upon the work of people who specialize in various elements. And you're, you know, you, in your cases, New Testament studies, particular Pauline studies. Are you saying you have to rely on Chris Tilling? I actually am saying I need you guys. I really, really do um, to do the work I feel called to do. I need you to do it, Chris. Chris, you are welcome to the party. Never mind. Yeah, uh, and in fact, you you got the leading invitation. It sounds like, and and but also want to learn from the Christian tradition, which I view as not you know perfect in any stretch, but as as the work of brilliant and in many cases brilliant and godly people who are wrestling with some of the same issues that we're wrestling with now and may have some insights that are still important for us and in some cases may actually have been overlooked or forgotten or sometimes just misunderstood. So I want that too. But that means I need people like, say, Lewis Ayers and Richard Muller and others who actually are doing the hard, you know, the really hard work of the first-rate historical theology that I need to be able to do what I'm doing. And similarly with, um, with the analytic side of things. I know I get out of my depth really quickly, and I the, a book like this um, is a little bit, a little bit makes one a bit vulnerable because I understand. Look, I'm making claims that could. I mean, there are people in working in exegesis and biblical studies, and also people who are working in um, on the analytic side, who know a great deal more about any of these things and could come back. So the safe thing to do is probably just stick with one narrow area. And do that. But to me, theology is too exciting to do that. And it's actually too important just to be safe. So in this book, I'm just trying to pull together what I think are some really helpful things going on in analytic theology, particularly with Christology, of course, and what I take to be some really fruitful and theologically provocative things that are going on in, in New Testament studies and particularly Pauline studies. So I'm just trying to pull it together here. That's That's all. I'm probably not making any real contributions on anything novel on any particular thing. I'm just trying to pull some things together. I'm I'm with you in terms of these are fascinating questions, and you've got to be broad in your reading. But I find, I mean, I have an interest in Karl Barth and, of course, in Pauline theology. But that's enough. I, you know, to, to then pull in other areas is 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 nigh on in, impossible. And what I'm most astonished about when when reading your book is how fluent you are in New Testament scholarship, logic, analytic, analytic philosophy, Bart, Aquinas, and more besides. You know, how the hell do you manage to keep so many plates spinning? Or, or, or maybe putting it more positively, do you, do you have a schedule or something? I mean, how do you do this? He's a Methodist. I'm a Methodist, yeah, there we go. I, I Well, I am, but... Um... I just love this stuff, Chris. And so I, um, I, I just love this stuff. And so it just, it makes it fun. And once it's fun, it starts to get, I'm not going to say easy, but it's just, it's just exciting. And mm. I mean, it, seriously, if, if I can have people who are really good in New Testament scholarship, helping me think better about how Paul portrays and presents Jesus Christ, how cool is that that I get to do that? And yeah. if I then no, but seriously, if I also get to read um, these sort of first-rate analytic thinkers who are bringing uh, clarity 
to these discussions, and in some cases, really helping focus on the, the sort of key points, and then for either foreclosing certain options or pressing certain things forward. Um, how cool is that, right? And especially if you get to do it with people who are actually informed by the Christian tradition along the way too. So I, I don't have any secret sauce or anything, and I and and oh, I'm, so I'm pretty aware of my of you know what I you know some some of the things I don't know, but. Um, Wow. Uh, it's just fun. That's, that's the only answer. It's just, I just get into it and I love it. And once it's fun, it's a whole lot, it's just a whole lot easier. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, let's dive into the book a little more here then specifically. Um, in chapter one, you're probing the cogency of recent scholarship pertaining to what it might mean to be crucified with Christ. What is especially in view here are the boundaries of personal identity and union with Christ. You're working especially with a key New Testament text, Galatians 2, 19 through 20. I'm going to go ahead and read that just so it's fresh on all of our minds. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Tom, uh, you divide recent scholarship into kind of a modest apocalyptic and radical apocalyptic interpretations of the text. Can you describe uh, what you're t what you're calling the modest apocalyptic and then the radical apocalyptic positions? So, yeah, briefly, the what I call them, what the apocalyptic um, versions ha together have in common, I take it, is, and Chris, you, well, both of you, um, feel free to correct me on any of this. I wish you would have corrected me before it went in print, but you know, um, what I take the apocalyptic, um, different apocalyptic approaches to have in common is a stronger sense of discontinuity between old and new. And by stronger, I mean stronger than either traditional Protestant interpretations and certainly stronger than uh, so-called new perspectives on Paul, right? Um, that's correct, right? Um, so I take the, a stronger kind of discontinuity between old and new, and that includes old new covenant, things like that, but also includes the identity um, of the old and new self in Christ. And so what I take to be common is this stronger notion of discontinuity and a more um, pronounced sense of, uh, of, of difference. Now, what I call the modest account once this sort of general, um, the people I take to be proposing what I call the label, I sort of categorize under the modest umbrella, are the people who want to say, yes, there's a lot of this dust continuity. It's apocalyptic in, in these senses. We understand Paul in these ways. But when it comes to this passage you just read for us, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, we should still think of continuity between the old self and the new self. What I'm referring to is the radical apocalyptic view is saying that there's actually a loss of continuity between the old and new. Something much more, um, much more drastic is happening at this point. And so when um, what, what Galatians 2.19 and 20 are, what, what this is describing is something fundamentally discont discontinuous uh, with what came before. And, and so I, in the, in the book, what I do is I just look at several um, people I think to be the sort of leading interpreters of Paul, especially from the apocalyptic schools. And I just say one way, at least some of them take things that sound really radical, 
Like there is no continuity between old and new. It's completely gone. Something new has completely replaced it. The, the, at least say things that sound a lot like that, whether or not that's meant as some rhetorical flourish or whether it's meant as really a, 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 you know, a, full, a fulsome statement of the sober metaphysical truth of the matter, right? They certainly say things like this. And so I just look at these statements and I say, okay, let's, what's, you know, let's evaluate these, do some theological analysis and theological evaluation. And what I say is that the really radical views are weighed in the theological balances and found wanting on several points, even trying to um, give them the strongest sort of interpretations that we can. And I offer a couple of those. One I call um, replacement theories. And one I refer to as fusion theories, and this is particularly union with Christ. And I, yeah, I don't and so, think that those are going to work. That's my argument in the book. So then what I do in this chapter is then re- revert to an older sort of approach that one finds in, in classical exegetes such as um, John Chrysostom and others. And uh, I try to rehabilitate that and say, actually, that offers a helpful way forward. That's what I'm trying to do in that chapter. Yeah, and um, and so when you're talking about this the, kind of the radical discontinuity, it's uh, part of the the claim, at least of some within the more radical apocalyptic school, would be a total discontinuity of the self in particular, right? It's the I that's, yeah, the I that's completely annihilated, uh, and that all that's left over after the union with Christ is Christ, uh, and that the I has somehow either been absorbed um, or completely assumed into Christ. Um, so that uh, what what kind of self is left. Um, and so uh, you particularly drew on um, at least the language you used and, and the theoretical kind of model um, was especially like joint attention, um, which was new to me. Um, I hadn't uh, I hadn't seen this um, before. What uh, why might that be a helpful tool um, or framework, uh, this joint attention um, kind of language for thinking through the problem? So when we when we when we wrestle with a passage, like Galatians 2, 19 and 20. And we're looking at the relation of the old self who's been crucified with the new self who's now joined in union with Christ and resurrection, right? We can either take that sort of, I guess on one extreme would be sort of, well, that's just super flowery language that's just talking about now you have a new lease on life or something, right? Mm-hmm. The other extreme would be, or toward the other extremes would be the kinds of apocalyptic things we're talking about. Like you don't exist anymore. I, the, the I is gone. It's just Christ. Um, or it's a completely new, uh, completely new replica that looks like the old Tom or Chris or Matt, but isn't right. Well, I, I make arguments against those readings and maybe they work. Maybe they don't. They do spoiler, but uh, <laughs> Okay, but but I also don't want to go back to the just, this is just a sort of super flowery way of saying, oh, Matthew, now you have a new lease on life. Okay, yeah. try harder, do better. So what I want to do is, is have a stronger account of union with Christ. And this is where I do appeal to what's sometimes referred to in the literature as joint attention. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing, I think we find it only in fleeting senses and incomplete ways with one another. But anyone who, say, has someone, you become, you become super close until you almost think what the other person is thinking without, like, you, you uh, uh, something happens and you, you initially respond the same way together. And then maybe your eyes meet across the room and you both know 
right? And sometimes it's a moment of humor. Sometimes it's a moment of pathos. Sometimes it's hurt. Um, sometimes spouses develop this sort of connection. I think um, anyone who has ever been a parent of a child who has been mistreated or mocked immediately knows a little bit of this. You don't have to try to, you don't have to try to put yourself in a position where you're like, boy, I'm going to try to be empathetic. When you see your child belittled or mocked, you immediately feel right. You, you see what I'm saying? You're, you're, you immediately connect. You share mm-hmm. what the child is thinking and feeling at the time. And you don't have to try to make yourself do that. Right. That's, those are sort of these limited accounts of joint attention and they get us closer, right. So, to where our, um, affection, our, our thoughts, but also our affections are closely aligned and come into, come into alignment more and more. And, I think that something like that, I'm not saying that's fully, that's sufficient as a count of union to Christ. I don't think it is, but I think it gets us closer. So it's not just the, this is a flowery way of saying you have a new lease on life, you know, go try to act like Jesus a little bit more. Okay. But this is a, it's something, it's getting us closer to, to the count we need, whereby we come to share the affections of Christ. He, the incarnation, he shares human affections and in this union with Christ, joined with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, we also come to share the affections of our Lord to where this is to move now to, sorry to do the systematic theologian thing and jump passages, but to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been reconciled and now given the ministry of reconciliation. We can, as Paul says there, can no longer look at anyone as we did before. This, this, this should completely turn everything upside down to where we then be more and more come as we share joint attention with Christ to see a broken world as Christ does, not as someone dist- distanced from it saying, ah, oh, it's on you, um, but to where we more and more love what Christ loves, abhor what Christ abhors, hate what Christ hates, um, so that's anyway, I stopped preaching now, but that's more the, uh, uh, that's what I'm trying to drive toward. And I think joint attention gets us some distance toward that. I think it's a helpful tool. It's not sufficient, but it's a helpful way of getting us closer. It's so fascinating. I've really enjoyed this chapter and how you, you show that we have questions that demand answers. Um, and uh, I, so I think this is a real step forward certainly for me when thinking about Galatians chapter 2 and other places in Paul's letters, uh, even his anthropology more generally. Um, But I've always had the suspicion that the description of apocalyptic readings in terms of continuity versus, sorry, discontinuity versus continuity is often how those who want to emphasize continuity want to frame it, um, particularly Tom Wright. Um, and so I have a PhD student at the moment who's who's working on this. So shout out Jared to you, um, and he he's exploring what we mean by discontinuity, um, in particular in 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 light of Galatians uh, three and four. 
And so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. You 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 speak of apocalyptic theologians who insist on radical discontinuity on on one of uh, page twenty four. Um, could you unpack that a little bit? Well, the way I I set this up. Um, trying to say, here's at least what people say. It's at least suggestive of this fully radical approach where there's no continuity. And what I'm interested mostly in is not the broader discussions of apocalyptic versus new perspective or whatever. I'm interested particularly in the anthropological issue here in Galatians 2. So, I mean, I'm interested in the other issues, but here I'm interested in this, right? So I'm interested in what is the relation between the old eye and the new eye? And where is that at? That's really what I'm most interested in. And what I'm trying to say is there are people within the apocalyptic school who are really, they say things that are really, to my eyes and ears, bold and forceful on this. For that, for that reason, really interesting. Um, but also, in the end of the day, to me, unconvincing and not always actually defensible. Uh, now, maybe, maybe there's some rhetorical flourish with some of those statements. And maybe they don't actually intend it quite the way it sounds. I gave an earlier version of this chapter at this um, Logos Seminar in Analytic and Exegetical Theology at St. Andrews. And thankfully, uh, Doug Campbell was there. He's such a delightful person. He's really forceful. And he, he saw me before this started. He hadn't read it yet. But he sees me before it starts. And he's like, he comes up to me. He's super friendly. He's like, just want you to know, I, it's not at all personal. I'm coming at you. And so what I thought, I was trying to give a little bit of wiggle room in this and saying, eh, you know, these statements sound like this really radically discontinuous view, but maybe there are rhetorical, there's some rhetorical flourish there and some overstatement. So I was trying to give room for people to back off of it. He didn't back off. He like, he like came hard, uh, right? He, 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 um, he wanted I think he thought it was being too soft. You know, no, we want the really, the really, the really radical view of this. So I, I take that there, take that there are people who really do take that as the right view. I'm just not one of them. Well, I did, so this leads us right into chapter two, which is um, a, a change of of tone, a different kind of argument. Which is such a rich book; it really is astonishing. Where you're looking at the Pistis Christu um, debate now. Matt, of course, has a nice series. On Onscript, um, talking with a number of different authors in this regard. And uh, one point, so really this is a question for you both, and um, maybe even Matt, I could sort of ask you this, this question, because Tom, you say on page 43 that grammatical analysis allows for the possibility that Pistis Christu is both, uh, you know, to be understood in terms of the subjective and objective uh, genitive. Now in light of Kevin Grasso's work, and, and Matt interviewed him on this very issue, you know, what would you say about that, Matt? Do you think the Greek can steer us a little bit? And Tom, you know, chip in on this. Yeah, well, this is probably something that was published, um, I would say Grasso's work was probably published after Tom's book, at least was already in print, so you wouldn't have had the benefit of consulting at all. But, um, but Grasso has a recent article in JSNT, um, and as part of that, he, he makes a strong argument that the objective genitive is linguistically disallowed, uh, which is a new argument nobody's made before. Um, he argues um, that it's a specific, that the verb noun patterning between pistuo and pistis, um, when you look at the arguments that each one takes, um, that 
uh, Pistis takes certain kinds of arguments, um, uh, Pistuo takes certain kinds of arguments, that because they, they consistently take the same, what, what, what he terms arguments, it's a specific kind of verbal, verb-noun relationship, and so that Pistis is called a de-verbal noun. Um, so what he does is he looks to see, is it, is it the case that Pistuo ever can take uh, an, of, an of, you know, kind of a genitive relationship um, and, and, and do it in the objective sense. And if it doesn't do that, well, then that means the, the noun can't do it either because of the specific kind of verb-noun relationship. Now, I'm probably summarizing him kind of poorly in a less nuanced way than I should. Um, but the upshot of his argument is that the traditional objective genitive understanding is completely disallowed um, for a native speaker of Koine. Um, so it's a powerful new case. You'll, you'll want to check it out. I, I doubt that you probably um, have had a chance to avail yourself of it because it's, it's pretty recent, like as in the last year, maybe. Um, uh, anyway, so in, in light of that, um, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm still wrestling with it. Um, but there's two different ways of thinking about, I guess, the, gr the grammar of um, these head noun, genitive noun constructions. One would be that they're kind of floppy, right? And that like, well, when you have a head noun in the nominative followed by a genitive noun or, or whatever, that um, that they're not, if they're not disambi disambiguated by our native speaker, then we should allow both possibilities to sort of reside there um, because it hasn't been disambiguated for us. So it could be objective and subjective simultaneously or whatever. Um, the other line of thought um, says that that's um, unlikely for native speakers, that they, they, they generally have intentions. And even if they don't disambiguate for us, um, that native patterns of speech would have caused a disambiguation. Gross was clearly in the latter camp. He sees um, native speech patterns as causing a disambiguation. At least that would be my reading of him. Um, anyway, the, the yeah, um, in terms of Grosso's work, I, I would I would tend to say that it, I think unless somebody can show Grosso's wrong, I think I, I've tended to want to think I think Grosso's um, onto something here, and that he may have decisively closed off the objective genitive as a possibility, um, which would leave us for uh, subjective uh, readings or third way readings. He himself advocates for third way. Uh, I still uh, I don't think that he really has closed off uh, the subjective reading as a very strong possibility. Would be my own my own sense of Grosso's work. But anyway, that's may, maybe uh, to, just to kind of inform you, Tom, some of the, the more recent conversations. And I don't know if you have anything that you want to add um, in light of, um, yeah, Chris's question in general or um, uh, your own work on this where you might want to tweak or reconsider or, um, yeah, just kind of um, some fodder for you to, to ponder. So I guess uh, the, short, the only thing I want to add is thanks. No, this is why I need people who actually, this is their field to, you know, this is why I need to talk with people. And I really, really appreciate it. But I'll check it out. That's all I can say right now. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, honestly, we're all checking it out. I think is, uh, it's, a, it's a really, <laughs> it's a bold new proposal that, I mean, uh, I mean, and on the one hand, conveniently for me, like it supports the, at least it leaves the avenue still possible for um, the, the way that I would make sense of Galatians and Romans and other passages where we have the pistis Christu. Um, those who have favored the objective genitive have got to be kind of um, rocked back on their heels here. It's uh, trying to think about how they can respond to Grasso or if they can't respond to Grasso. But I haven't seen anything yet. I haven't seen any response to his work from those who favor an objective genitive. And, you know, I, I can't... Um, 
I don't have the time to kind of exhaustively explore Grasso's work. Um, but on the surface, it's it's um, to the degree I've been able to explore it, it's pretty convincing. So we'll see how uh, scholarship unfolds on it. And I don't think it's that you're behind the times or have missed the punch on this. The reality is, is this is brand new, and I think it's uh, it's rocked the Pauline studies world a fair bit, uh, and uh, and just very recently. Well, thanks for that. Honestly, um, we were probably, I'm guessing, just the way these things go, our works were probably in the pipeline. Yeah, pipeline I would at the same time. think that's almost certainly the case. There's no way you could have availed yourself of his work, I don't think. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pass by Pistis Christu then for the time being. Let's jump to your chapter three. Um, and in chapter three, Tom, you use the theological interpretation of scripture as a tool in order to weigh in on recent debates uh, pertaining to some of Karl Barth's proposals. An aspect of Barth's theology has implications for how we best understand God's freedom with respect to the Incarnation. The debate has to do with whether or not Barth accepted the pre-existent second person of the Trinity as Logos Asarkos, the word without flesh, or whether he only accepted the Logos Incarnatus, the word to be incarnated. Um, can you explain uh, what's going on with this debate and um, why it might matter? And I think it's of deep interest to both to Chris and I, um, as uh, we, we've both done work on either Christology or Trinity or are continuing to do work. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, help us out here uh, with uh, this important debate within uh, Bartian scholarship. Yeah, so it started out just as a debate among the Bartian specialists, like how to read Bart. That was the first, that was the way it sort of broke broke open. And it took a while uh, just because for some people who are scholars of Bart, it, certain people of the house and lineage of Karl Bart, um, pretty much what Karl Bart said, getting Karl Bart right and getting theology right are almost the same thing. So <laughs> it's yeah. hard to disconnect these questions. But it started out kind of as a debate over who gets Bart right and turned into a debate on how should we think about these things theologically which is where my interests actually are more than just on yeah, the who gets yeah. right side of it. Right. Um, and so here's the proposal is that um, there is no Lagos Asarkos as such. There is only a Lagos Incarnandus, that is a Lagos to be incarnated. And so that the humanity of Christ then has eternal and ontological significance for our understanding of who God is. Um. And so what I try to do, I, I think it's a super fascinating proposal, and um, it's it's it, there's a lot more. And we're not done with this discussion yet, I'm very sure. And I and the uh, the discussions of the development are ongoing. Actually, the development itself, I think, is ongoing. So what I'm trying to do is to say, well, here's some things to really look out for. So what I try to do in this is first describe the proposal. Uh, I think I, I think that comes out fairly cleanly. And then what I try to do is next um, take a look at least some of the um, exegetical support for the proposal. And then thirdly, raise some broad theological issues that need further attention. I think need the attention pretty desperately. Um, and so and I, what I do there is argue that whichever way one takes these new proposals, right, uh, whichever one way they need to be disambiguated, whichever way one takes in the disambiguation process, there are challenges looming. So, in other words, I think that the revisionist proposal has some serious problems um, that it needs to face. Now, maybe those could be addressed. These conversations are ongoing. It, it would be, I think, premature to say that 
the objections are fatal, but the objections are pretty serious and from my view are probably fatal. Okay. Uh-huh. But I, I just think I, what I want to do is try to help the discussion move forward by at least raising some, some pretty pointed objections to this proposal. Yeah, and I think you do that very effectively. Um, and we can name names here. It's Bruce McCormick's p- proposal, right, uh, in particular, that you um, are um, concerned about. And of course, as you say, it, it started out with a, a, a debate of how who gets Karl Barth right, but then it moves into a more constructive vein, right, as he wants to say, no, we, we need to mobilize um, this, um, even if even if I'm not reading Barth right, which of course McCormick, McCormick thinks he is, right? Um, nevertheless, it's still an important constructive proposal. So uh, can you, yeah, like give a little bit more on exactly what's at stake? If, if um, what's, what's theologically at stake in this debate? Because I feel like we, um, I think you did a great job of giving an overview of where you're going with it. But I, th- I think listeners and even myself, I'm still trying to get my brain around what's, uh, what's really at stake um, in terms of whether the, the word is best understood as a sarcos or the incarnatus. Uh, yeah. So here, here's, here's one way to think about it. If the modal, and by modal, I mean um, issues of logical necessity of contingency, right? If the if to if for God to be triune and for God to be creative and incarnate, if the modal status of those two claims goes together, okay, so that it's necessary on one hand, then we've got here's a here's a set of possibilities. It's necessary that God is triune, but then also necessary, this is part of God's triunity, that God is creative and incarnate. Um, if one ties the status of those two claims together, again, on the one hand, God is triune, and the other, God is creative and incarnate. If one ties those together, then they're both necessary, or they're both contingent. The latter option, you have a contingent trinity, and then that is going to come with a whole batch of further theological problems. It's going to raise the issue. Because then somebody is making something or someone is making God triune, right? Yeah, you got the God behind the God. You got of a questions. God behind God, right? Yeah. And but if you make them both necessary, then you you raise a whole other set of issues and I think problematic concerns that are going to come, including maybe modal collapse, which the fancy old theological word is just fatalism. In other words, if once we begin to unpack what what modality does for us here, right? And we think through carefully about what necessity means. And we think in terms of possible worlds, then what we have here really is um, the threat of fatalism. And on that view, um, it's not a God behind the back of God, but it's something else behind the back of God. And so on just even on, even on distinctly, Bartian theological impulses, one should be resistant to either way that goes. Either both are contingent or both are necessary. Yeah. And when you say fatalism, you're not just talking about human fatalism, but also divine fatalism. No, right? no. As, uh, God, God has, has no, no freedom in this, right? And yes, so, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. for Bart, of course, God is the one who loves in freedom. And so what we want to do is continue to find the best ways to express the love, but without losing sight of the... By the way, I, I, I'm with Bart on that. I want to affirm that God is the one who loves in freedom. Um, but I think that these 
this revolutionary proposal that McCormack's putting forward. It's brilliant. It's bold. It's super provocative. But either way you take it, it's going to run into problems. Maybe those problems are not in the Super Bowl. Maybe he's got a way out. But I, I'm not optimistic. But at the very least, I just want to say they need to these concerns need to be addressed. The objections need to be faced. Well, maybe maybe we could move on to to chapter four because it's kind of related in many ways to to chapter three. I think they belong together. And I'm trying to con construct a sentence at the moment. I've got a screaming daughter in the background, and I don't know about you, but whenever that happens, my brain just goes <laughs> to mush, and I can't think straight. Um, but it's it's really about um, Bruce McCormack, uh, and particularly whether his most recent book, um, The Humility of the Eternal Son, has addressed any of your concerns or deepened them, you know, his other account of ontological receptivity? So this could be a really short answer. I don't know. Um, I haven't read the book. Now, I'm, I'm actually super excited to. I'm already slated to do a review article for it in a journal, not just a review, but a review essay. Um, I, I've, I think I know where he's going with it, but I'm going to reserve comment until I know for sure. I say I think I know because I've heard his lectures on the topic, but I still right. want to. I'm not going to comment until I've read it. Um, it. It releases. Amazon in the U.S. sells it starting today. So I hope to have it okay. very, very soon. Oh, I see. I but see. I, I haven't been able to actually get a copy yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Check, I keep checking. And <clears> as of <throat> yesterday, it said today or it's either today or tomorrow it's supposed to release. So believe me, I'll get there. Um, and I mean, I'm actually excited to. It looks like it's a typical Bruce McCormack, very erudite. It's going to be, I mean, from what I've seen of it, the, the, the one chapter I was able to see, um, very erudite, very thorough. Um, he's, and he's, and, and he's, he's super interesting. So I'm sure I'll be uh, fascinated by it. I'm sure I'll have more to say. I just don't have it now. Now, I don't know about you, Matt, but I, I, I've got a, the perfect question for the quick fire uh, round that we just got to get out there. Have we got time um, for that? We, we probably don't have time for a full blown quick fire round, but you, uh, you got to hit him with a, a quick question and maybe I will. Um, and then uh, I know Tom has a meeting, right. so we're going to have to wrap up fairly promptly. But yeah, go ahead and hit him. Okay, so this is an analytic one for you. Okay, there's a train coming, and there are two people on the track. You can only save one. Um, one is someone who endorses the old perspective on Paul. The other is a person who endorses the new perspective on Paul. The train is coming. What kind of sandwich do you make? <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, leave it to Chris, right? Yeah, leave it to Chris. Yeah. So I think you're not a huge fan of either perspective. Is that, is, I'm just kind of reading yeah. in between. Yeah, yeah. What kind of sandwich are you going to make? You have to tell us what your favorite sandwich is. Uh, BLT. Oh, that's <laughs> so a solid does that, choice. Are you going to read anything into that about Old Covenant, New Covenant stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I don't know. I, I never think of a BLT when I think of a sandwich. I don't know. I think like pastrami or roast beef or turkey, but like bacon's just the cheat code, right? If you do, if you put bacon on it, that's... That's like unfair. It's meat candy. Yeah. Uh, my goodness. Um, well, we'll let that be. Our, uh, my speed round question was, I guess, the sandwich. What kind of sandwich? Um, your chapter five, Tom, um, focuses on social Trinitarianism, and we can't dive into this in, in any kind of deep way. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, social Trinitarianism has sort of become a naughty um, uh, word in certain circles, right? And uh, a... Um, 
a less than respectable position. Um, and this is after an initial wave of enthusiasm. Um, I think you are, um, you're continuing to do work um, that would try to show that there's something productive here um, and that uh, we need to uh, continue to use uh, or at least explore um, social Trinitarianism. Um, why? I guess, or uh, what's, uh, and, and I don't say this is not a hostile question at all um, coming from me, uh, but yeah. No, I actually really, really appreciate it. So here's what I would, here's what I wish. I think the term social Trinitarianism has become so um, plastic and, and that now it's become weaponized. We'd be better off without it. Like I would be happy if, I, if we never heard the term again. Um, it's probably not going to happen, but I would be happy. I think we'd be better off. If we're not going to drop it, what I wish is that we would at least be really clear about what we're talking about. So the first section of this chapter, what I do is just walk through several different prominent uses, like common uses of the term, some of which are completely different than other uses. And they're, it's hardly ever defined, but it's, it's bandied about. And sometimes, as I say, it's, it's weaponized. So if you can call something social trinitarian these days, you just you just hand wavingly dismissed it. Yeah. But we still know what it is. So what I try to do is say here are these different uses, and most of these are not helpful ways of using it at all. Yeah. My worry is on this. Okay. And then I do offer a Mike Ray and I over a decade ago offered a precise definition, but no one takes it. So I'm like, please use that if you're going to use it. If you're not going to use that then at least be clear about how you are using it. Better off, we just drop it. But the issues are still there. And so what I, what I am concerned about is that this anti-social Trinitarian backlash has become so pronounced that now we're losing certain things that I think are still really, um, I think are theologically appropriate, theologically correct, and theologically fruitful. Some of the backlashers now are so dismissive of anything that sounds social Trinitarian. When there are people saying like any, any notion of mutual love within the imminent Trinity is social Trinitarianism and therefore tritheism and haha is stupid. And that's the, that's really what I pick up in this chapter is to say, no, that's actually theologically warranted. It's biblically grounded. It's actually historically affirmed and the burden should be on people who want to reject it. I do have, by the way, a follow-up on this that's been accepted for publication in International Journal of Systematic Theology. It's a follow-up to this chapter, which is mostly, the, the, new, the new essay is mostly contending the historical case. And I'm just showing how prominent medieval and post-Reformation scholastic theologians, so these are the Latin classical tradition, there's the other phrase that's being used a lot, and here are people all over the place. And by all over the place, I don't mean just Richard of St. Victor and maybe one or two other heroes, you know, or whatever. Uh, I mean, it's Dominicans and Franciscans. I mean, it's Lutherans and Reformed. It's all over the place. It's Thomist and Scotus um, who are affirming mutual love within the Trinity. So I'm not done with this. <laughs> and I, I've got this essay forthcoming where I'm trying to to push that forward. Again, the term social trinity, I really don't care. If I care at all, it's please let's get rid of it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I'm at on it. But no yeah. one's probably going to listen to me there either. So I'm at well, least, please be clear about it. 
Well, I hope they do listen to you. I think that was, I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite part of your book. I really enjoyed um, the whole of it, but that um, I did, did really find that portion where you delineated the different types of social Trinitarianism um, to be exceptionally helpful. Um, and as a clarifying exercise, I do hope that anyone who critiques um, social Trinitarianism um, goes to your um, book and says, let's get down and, and get real about exactly what we are critiquing here. Um, and uh, your proposal with Mike Ray, I think, is certainly um, a provocative and thoughtful um, articulation of, of social Trinitarianism. So I commend you um, and commend that uh, to our readers. Um, I, I fear we're running out of time. Um, so let me just ask you one final question here, and you can be as brief or long as uh, as you wish as uh, we're, we're yeah, it's your it's your time constraints. So um, I think that it's fair to say this book leans in an academic direction, right? Um, but what uh, what kind of pastoral takeaway do you hope that listeners might have? We have a lot of pastors who listen, a lot of academics too. Um, but yeah, for those who have a pastoral heart, what are you hoping preaches here? Well, oh, I don't have time to do the full story, but I I'll just say this: I was preparing for to deliver a version of chapter one that is on Galatians 2, 19 and 20 and union with Christ at American Academy of Religion 2019, right? This was the last public thing I, I, I did. And I'm trying to, it's the, the session, it's the analytic theology lecture at AR. It's meeting that afternoon. So I go outdoors to find some place in the sun late that morning to try to review my work and just try to, you know, make sure I'm it's, it's here. And this dude, there's probably 200 chairs out in this, out on this big pavilion. And this guy comes sits in the one right beside me of all the places. And I'm like, what? I didn't say anything. And he's like, do you care if I sit here? And so I kind of lied. That's okay. And he's like, what are you doing? And then he's like, so I tell him, he's like, Oh, are you here for that religion thing? Yep. And he said, so yesterday on the sidewalk, I met some Jews and Buddhists. What are you? I said, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? These questions kept coming and I was kind of annoyed because I have work to do. Right. And then at some point, seriously, at some point I was like, oh my goodness, this dude is begging me to share the gospel with him. And so I just kind of unloaded and um, Chris and Matt, it might've been a little bit more continuity than you would like, right. As far as <laughs> sort of old to do. Right. But I still, I just sort of get, I just unloaded, man. I just went off and I don't know how long I went, probably 10 or 12 minutes, like just going. And at the end of it, he looks at me and goes, Oh my, what do I do? And so I was like, well, the first thing you do is, you know, I prayed with him. And then I gave him my Bible. And then I uh, said, now go find a church. It's Sunday. I, I've lost contact. I don't know, but it does matter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's an amazing story. Isn't it crazy? Uh, I mean, it's yeah. like, it's like, and I, I was kind of, you know, it was, it was, it was very humbling. Cause I thought, my goodness, I've been putting, trying to push this guy away. It's amazing how we can get wrapped up in our academic clouds, right? And uh, sometimes forget um, the, the real point of it all as uh, this needy person comes and sits right next to you and you're like, I've got my important paper to deliver, right? But then, the, then the Lord works on your heart, right? And uh, you realize. And I'm like, 
and finally hit, I'm like, oh my goodness, he's actually begging me to share good news with him. Okay, I, can, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an awesome story. Yeah. Love it. All right. Thank you guys. I really, yeah. really appreciate it. We love the book. Yeah. Yeah. And wish we had uh, more time to keep on chatting for hours, but that's how all these things are. Uh, this has been Matthew Bates and Chris Telling for On Script. We've been speaking with Thomas McCall about his wonderful new book, Analytic Christology and the Theological Interpretation of the New Testament, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Tom is doing cutting edge work that models how to integrate biblical studies, theology, and philosophy. I'd encourage you to pick up a copy, uh, www.onscript.study. Farewell until next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.